Today we're in the second week of one of our most popular sermon series. It's called My Most Important Question, or MMIQ for short. And the premise of this series is that too often churches ask us to check our doubts at the door and leave our most important questions behind. But the reality is that we all have deep questions we've wrestled with or are wrestling with throughout life. And at Christ City, we believe that when we wrestle with our doubt, our questions of faith, it it actually deepens our faith. And we believe that faith and doubt often grow in the same field. One of the most beautiful lines in the Bible is in Mark 9, when a man desperate to save his sick son meets Jesus and says to Jesus, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And that captures this paradox of faith. There are things we know, and then there are things we don't yet know and might not ever know. So during this series, people in our community here at Christ City will be sharing how they have wrestled through their most important question. Some of them are questions they've navigated in their past, and other questions are ones that are very present. They're in their lives right now. And we're grateful for their courage, for their honesty, for their transparency, and this unique way that they display to us the ways that they hold to Jesus, even even in the midst of uncertainty. The anchoring passage for our our most important question series comes from Mark 9, verses 17 through 24. So I'd invite you to stand as you're able to reverence the reading of God's word. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, my name is Hannah, and my most important question is, can I trust that God will provide me with a home and somewhere to belong wherever I go? Questions of belonging came early for me. I was born in Ethiopia to Eritrean parents. In the early 90s, when Eritrea became an independent country, my family moved from Ethiopia to Eritrea. I had to grapple with trying to make new friends while learning a new language, I got teased for my accent, and I felt different. Things got better after that, but the loss of my parents when I was still very young left me feeling completely lost. A couple of months after my father died, a school friend gave me a piece of paper. On it was the sentence, God can't be your father and mother. He probably doesn't know the depth of meaning that these words carried for me. As my eldest sister undertook the role of parent to me, God really showed up for us as a provider. And as a parent, 
through the community of friends that came together to support us. I came to the U.S. from Eritrea as a graduate student, but because of the political situation in my country of origin, I asked for asylum here. An asylee or refugee is a person that is unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin. I cannot go back to Eritrea. It is not a safe place for Christians. Our church was banned in 2004, and the lead pastors have been in jail since then. Many people have been in jail and tortured for their faith. The Eritrean government is not known for uh, being a champion of human rights. We've never had elections. Political opponents are jailed, and individual rights and freedoms are severely restricted. My story is not unique. Many young people ran away from Eritrea, often putting their lives in danger. I gave up on the idea that things would change under the current administration when I was in my first year of undergrad. University students were ordered to participate in a summer work program. We protested at the unjust terms, and all students were arrested and detained in the desert to be punished for disobedience for about 40 days. We were under constant surveillance by guards, and we were subjected to physical punishment if we disobeyed or did something that the guards did not like. It was hot. After 8 a.m., the temperatures could reach above 110 degrees. Two students died from heat stroke, and many fell ill. Some developed mental health problems. This incident left a permanent scar on me, and that's one of the reasons I no longer wanted to live in Eritrea. Being removed from home, the place where you were born or grew up, can complicate your identity and sense of belonging. I still love my home country, and I have fond memories of happy times I spent with family and with my friends. But I know that this idea of home only exists in my head now. Since leaving Eritrea, I've moved around a few times within the US and Canada and Zambia. Not having a sense of permanence anywhere, anywhere or a home to go back to can be lonely and depressing. In these moments, I go back to this time in my life. It was the year I graduated from high school. In Eritrea, all citizens are required to do military service when they complete 11th grade. The last week of May of that year, I, along with my schoolmates, packed our bags and showed up at our schools. At that time, a border war was underway with Ethiopia, and Ethiopian troops had advanced well into the country. Because the regular military camp in Sawa was being targeted by Ethiopian airstrikes, we were taken to a different place, to a makeshift encampment in the desert. We arrived, and I got off the bus to be engulfed by scorching heat. I stepped on the sand, and to my surprise, my feet felt heavy. I had never walked on sand before, and the way that it slowed me down made me wonder if I was going to survive this experience. One of the trainers asked me if I was there to say goodbye to a sibling. I was very skinny back then, and I looked very young, so he couldn't believe that I was there for military training. But most of us were 17 or 18-year-olds some younger. Because this was not a regular camp, there were no buildings. We made shelters by stringing our bed sheets together and holding them up with sticks. These would become our daily shelters from the scorching sun and the occasional sandstorm. At night, we slept under the stars. 
To give you an idea of, of what it was like, every day our trainers woke us up at 4.30 in the morning and made us go for a run and daily exercise. We were trained to fire AK-47s and use hand grenades. This was the first time I was away from home and the harsh environment was not easy to adjust to. One heartbreaking story from that time was that of Hiam, a girl who loved fun and laughter, a girl from my school who tragically passed away there. We did not know if and when we would be going back home. How military service works is that if your high school leaving exam results allow you to enter college, then you could go home after training is over after four months and a half. If you don't pass, then you stay in service indefinitely. The results are told in the camp and only a small fraction of the students pass the exam. Living with that uncertainty gave us serious anxiety. About two months in, I received a package with a couple of letters from my sister and my brother. I still remember the Bible passage in my brother's letter from Genesis chapter 28. It's the story of Jacob. He is leaving home, running away from his brother. He's afraid and he falls asleep. While he's asleep, he has a dream in which he sees a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching heaven. The angels of God are ascending and descending on it. And God promises to bless all peoples on earth by him and his offspring, affirming that he is with him and will watch over him wherever he goes, that he will bring him back to this land. And he promises, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I held on to that letter and I cried. God was in this place. Indeed, his presence was shown to me through the kindness of people that I met there. Not only the people that have become my lifelong friends, but also some of the trainers who treated us with compassion and understanding. I went home after the four months and a half had passed. I'm in Washington, D.C. now. I'm close to my siblings, but they're in different parts of the world. Each of them is married and has a family of their own. I don't know what the future holds, but I trust this promise, this word which has sustained me and taken me through many tough times, reminding me of the place that God has for me. Even in my many journeys in my nomadic life, it has carried me. I'm grateful for this, that in Christ, with God and God's people, there is a place of deepest belonging. I have never lacked for grace. I've never lacked for love, kindness, or friendship. Everywhere I have gone, including in D.C., God has kept this promise and provided me with a community and friends who become like my family. Thank you. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I've heard that verse throughout my life, and I wish I could say I've always found it comforting or instructive, but I can't. My name is Sam Mario Boydston. I've been attending Christ City Church since 2016 and serving as an elder since the January of this year. My most important question is, what if I don't trust the Bible? 
Growing up in a Bible-believing church and attending a Christian junior high, high school, and university meant that I heard the word at least six days a week, with supercharged summer camps and missionary trips as bonuses. I took courses like Old Testament Survey, Jesus and the Gospels, Acts and the Epistles, Theology, and Understanding the Times. I memorized Bible verses weekly, aced exams on the I am statements of Jesus, and wrote essays analyzing single verses from Romans. But with all of that head knowledge, I still had questions. My youth group leaders or Bible teachers would occasionally distribute index cards and ask us to write any questions we had about the Bible and faith. My questions showed my early feminist leanings and usually went something like this. In Leviticus, why is a woman considered unclean for twice as long if she gives birth to a baby girl? Deborah told Barak in Judges 4 that a woman will get the honor for the victory against Commander Sisera, but why is he listed in Hebrews 11 alongside warriors like Gideon and David instead of Jael, the woman who drove a stake through the head of Israel's enemy? Why does Paul write in 1 Corinthians that a woman's hair is her glory? What does it mean that women are safe through childbearing in 1 Timothy? They never answered my questions. The men, because all of my Bible teachers and pastors were men, who were supposed to be helping point young people to Christ and inspire a love for God's word, they all skipped my questions. I never knew if they saw them as nitpicky, difficult, insincere, or in setting them up for a gotcha. But having my genuine curiosity hand-waved made me feel like I was wrong, or like my wonderings were unworthy compared to the questions like, why does God allow bad things to happen? Somehow, they were always able to tackle those. This changed when I was serving as a missionary in La Paz, Bolivia. The pastor at my local English-speaking expat church offered us the same exercise. He asked the congregation to email him any questions they had about the Bible, and he would preach a sermon, answering them as honestly as he could. For weeks, he shared sermons on divorce, abortion, and women in leadership. I emailed him about misogyny in the Bible, and to his credit, he delivered a sermon answering the question, does God hate women, and explored each of the examples that I mentioned. Initially, I was relieved. Someone I respected cared enough to answer my questions. And while I remain grateful to Pastor Dan for his thoughtful engagement with me and my question, this brought to head some other issues that had simmered below the surface for a long time. My issues with the text we claim as holy go deeper than misogyny or the application of specific verses. Turns out that answering some of my questions led to only more questions. Why did it take interviews with experts on Jewish purification customs, consultations with commentaries and dictionaries of ancient Greek to answer questions about the Bible? I knew the rough contours of the canonization process and the councils that assembled the points of orthodoxy of our faith, but why was this so hard to untangle? I had run into the limits of my predominantly white evangelical upbringing that argued that literal and faithful readings of the text pointed to one clear answer only, and I was bruised as I battered myself against those boundaries. The book that I was told held all the answers to life, death, faith, and love seemed inaccessible to people who were just told to read it and do what it said or to listen to what the person behind the pulpit told us to do. 
The Bible clearly says, became my least favorite saying, since I wasn't sure that the Bible was clear about a lot of things people seemed so confident about. Between transcribing, translating, and reading, I felt that modern readers must be missing so much. Why did it seem like someone would need to devote a lifetime of study to places, people, language, and culture from far away in time and space to understand the God of the universe and our Savior? For the rest of us just to blindly trust what we heard or hope that the words on the page weren't too far removed from their original message for us to understand in our own lives? How could I hang my faith, my politics, and my life on words that scholars continue to argue about? My question was becoming, what if I don't trust the Bible? But even though my head had these desperate questions swirling in it, my skepticism didn't interfere with my participation in God's community, weaken my worship, or make me want to walk away from my faith. I was sustained by weekly small groups with Bible study, and those times nourished my soul, stoked my love for God, and brought me closer to Christ. And I could even feel the Spirit move me to encourage others through the Word. The faith institutions I've been a part of have tried to serve God and advance the kingdom in their own ways. They wanted to feed the hungry, bless the poor, and care for those who needed it, including my own mother when she became a widow. Wondering what was lost in the text didn't make worshiping in community or taking communion any less powerful to me. The songs I lifted up might have been more prayers to believe what I was singing, but I sang them and I meant it. The grace offered at the table didn't depend on me, so I could approach it with humility and gratitude. I both knew and believed that God is good, that the church is mighty, and that my place in this world was wherever Christ led me. So what now? If I'm to love God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind, like Jesus describes in Matthew 22, that means I'm to continue pursuing answers to my questions about the Bible. It means submitting my curiosity to God, knowing that truth is found in Christ. Therefore, I don't need to be afraid of where my questions lead. So I'm trying to read widely, but privileging the voices of women and people of color whose perspectives were sorely missing in my education. I know I'm not the first one to have these questions, and I've been comforted to find people investigating the same queries, even as we take different paths to disparate answers. Ultimately, I know that learning more about the Bible is not a substitute for being in the Word. Loving God with my heart and soul means leaning hard into trusting the Spirit's leading. Being Spirit-led doesn't mean that I'm trusting myself or trying to use my own intuition to discern God's will. It means that I'm trying to cultivate a love of the Word. Rather than leading away from Scripture, my journey is leading me deeper into it, calling on the promise in Isaiah 55 that God's Word not return empty and that God will reveal truth to me. And there's tradition there too. Jacob wrestled with an angel for a blessing from God in Genesis 32, and my struggles with God's word are for a blessing meant for the faithful. This word has brought hope and freedom to so many, so I refuse to let it go without tasting the sweetness talked about in Psalm 119, verse 103, where they find God's word sweeter than honey to my mouth. I have to trust in the promise of verse 32, that running in paths of God's commands will set my heart free. 
So the answer to my question is, as so many things, a yes and and already and not yet. I have to continue learning more, knowing that I will only find more questions. I'm both grateful for the word that was taught to me and what I learned about the great I am, even as I always want to know more of God's character. My question is both, what if I don't trust the Bible? And what if I don't trust the Bible as I was taught it, but I'm learning to love it now? What if the word is more beautiful, more complicated, more inviting, more inclusive, more challenging, and asks more of me than I thought? What if I can listen well to the spirit and the voices of others who have found liberation in God's promises? Well, that's a what if I can live with. So I leave you with my favorite verses, the verses I most often pray over others in benediction or send in blessing, and it's what I pray for myself. Psalm 25, four through five says, show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, guide me in your truth and teach me for you are God, my savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Grace and peace, church. Our friends have given us a gift today, the gift of themselves, their stories, their vulnerability, their experiences and strivings with God. And there's a number of ways to respond to this, a number of forms. It might be to thank one of them or all of them after the service. It might be to ask them to pray for you and your own questions. It might be for you to consider your most important question and maybe even to share it with somebody else.